Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. These unsung heroes mostly remain away from limelight, but contribute tremendously towards company building. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. I'm your host, Rohit Agarwal, and besides this podcast, my full-time duties include building Creo, the unified operating system for corporate spend. We are bringing together the whole journey of spend so you can buy, pay, and manage all your corporate spends from one single platform. Do check us out at www.krayo.io. Without further ado, let's tune in to learn, grow, and inspire. Today, we have a very special guest joining us on the podcast. Based in Mumbai, he's a titan in the world of investment banking, especially in the digital and technology sectors in India. With over two decades of experience under his belt, he's been at the forefront of some of the most significant transactions in the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a friend and a mentor, Pankaj Nayak, the co-head of digital and technology investment banking at Avendis Capital, the premier financial services firm in India, which I'm also a proud alumni of. This group co-led by Pankaj has worked with some of the most marquee names in the Indian startup ecosystem, including, check this out, Off Business, Zepto, Dream11, Daily Hunt, Swiggy, Lenscart, Mintify, Licious, Open, Eruditus, Nika, Zenoti, and many, many more. The list is just incredibly long. Pankaj Silastra's career has also seen him work with some of the most prestigious names in the banking world, including an 11-year stint with JP Morgan, where he led transactions worth over $10 billion, and DSP Merrill Lynch. Pankaj is an alumnus of the esteemed IM Calcutta, holding an MBA with a major in finance, and he's also an engineering graduate from the Government College of Engineering, Pune. A regular speaker at top-tier industry events, focused on technology ecosystem in India, Pankaj brings a wealth of knowledge and insights to the table. Let's deep dive into the world of digital and technology investment banking with the one and only Pankaj Nayak. Pankaj, welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast. So glad to have you here. Thank you, Rohit. Thanks for calling me here. Let's start with a little uh, background on you. So tell us, how did you make your way into this amazing world of finance and ended up being the co-head of technology practice at Avendis Capital. If I were to start, it's a it's a long, long way back because I've been working uh, in this field for quite some time. So look, um, I'm, I'm an engineer by profession. I come from a small town. When I was doing my engineering, you know, that was a thing to do. If you come from a small town, because if you do engineering in a good college, at least uh, your future is safe and secured. So that's what I did. So I went to College of Engineering Pune and then while doing engineering, I just didn't think that that is something that I wanted to do. So what else you do? Then somebody said, oh, people who don't like engineering but are reasonably intelligent and go do MBA. So, but I worked for a couple of years before I did did that. And then and the two years of engineering work made my beliefs even stronger that that is not something that I want to do. And the real reason is also that not that you know, I could pass the CAT exam in first attempt. So obviously, I did my two years of work experience, which is probably more of an outcome than a choice. And then went to IM Calcutta and um, 
while studying there, for some reason, I, I just loved the finance subject. So when I went in, well, I thought that I like I, I like marketing and strategy, etc. more, but somehow I fell in love with finance and I took a lot of finance subjects irrespective of the grades that you get into them. And when I graduated, I joined DSP Middle Lynch out of campus. That's a story there as well, because I think most of the finance jobs used to go to the people with very high CGPA. And, and I, I just thought that I, I, it's one of those things I, I really like doing finance. So I just decided I'll go for it. And thankfully, it all turned out well. So so then I joined DSP Merrill Lynch. I worked there for four years, very formative years, under great leaders, uh, phenomenal learning. I worked there for four years. Then I joined JP Morgan in 2004, another amazing place. JP Morgan was just expanding in India at that point. I was the fifth employee in investment banking. So you got to see everything that goes along with building the practice and you keep at it. So I was there for 11 years. And then I received a call from Avendis for this uh, joining the DNT team. I used to see all these transactions that Avendis used to do because for somehow I was in their database. So I used to get this, the deal update emails, which I now, you know, I'm, I'm very disciplined about making sure that everybody who tracks us gets them. So now I know the, the secret sauce of that. But like every month, something like that, like a $30 million transaction, $50 million transaction, $100 million transaction, $20 million transaction. And those transactions were like, like completely in very diverse set of companies, online furniture, payment, and like fintech. And like, I said, what are these guys doing, man? Like, and obviously in, in a large bank where, you know, anything less than 300 million doesn't move the needle. I was not being able to get it or there was no foreign bankers were actually excited about coming and sharing your excitement about tech companies. So so I just thought, let me just kind of see if this works out. And and I jumped into it. I'm glad I took the call. And, and more importantly, I'm glad that Dora Deepak took the call <laughs> as to work both ways. So, and so I joined here and yeah, it's been eight years and it's been phenomenal. Obviously, the whole tech uh, space as such grew so substantially and phenomenally in last seven, eight years. So obviously we got benefited of that, but like we did a lot of hard work to kind of make sure that we build on top of whatever we had and could create our space here. So I think it's a lot of hard work and serendipity, which I truly believe that in business like ours, external environment determines a lot in terms of outcome, but your sincerity, hard work and innovation at least gets you the ticket to the lottery. It's all worked out well. Very interesting. Did you ever feel that you should have continued to do engineering for you know one way or the other after <laughs> landing and, and and sort of advising technology companies after uh, all? No, uh, <laughs> no. For a brief period of time, I was in one of the leading IT services companies because I did instrumentation engineering and I worked as an instrumentation engineer for about like 15 months and I got really bored and I was not sure whether I'll actually get into one of the IMs or not. So I just wanted to make sure that if not this, then what else? So I went for four months in one of the leading IT companies. And I realized that if that was bad, like this, <laughs> it's even worse. Uh, the, the only thing that at some point of time in my first four or five years of investment banking career, I realized that if I would have stayed there, I would have got like 100 ESOPs of this really bellwether company and 
and everybody is talking about that and those esops probably could have been worth something where in my early years of investment banking both the the salary and bonuses <laughs> were not exciting <laughs> that was a different time rohit so <laughs> so there was a thought that crossed my mind but then i realized how many programs i crashed trying to kind of write a simple code and then realize oh i don't think so <laughs> they probably would have asked us 100 esops to return at some point of time so yeah i never felt that you know that part would have been good for me no absolutely not very cool tell us a little more about the thought process behind jumping from dsp merrill lynch to jpm as i understand dsp at that point in time had a very good name in the investment banking circles in india and jpm as you said was just emerging you were the fifth employee in the investment banking department and looking back i think when i somebody in my team leaves for a private equity or one of the bulge brackets i just asked the same question to myself my bosses could have asked me at that point of time right like why i mean you're probably getting everything but i think one of the most important reasons i went to jp morgan at that point of time was i just thought that they were building an ability to grow a new franchise which is committed to india would be far higher compared to the place where i was in also because they were quite a lot of bankers in dsp merlinch and everybody had a good work and i had given my 120 150 whatever 200% in first four years so i learned quite a bit and you know obviously i'll continue to learn more but i just thought that the ability to getting more front ending role or ability to build something along with my seniors i'm not saying i was too junior for that to for for me to build something but you know with them was uh, was pretty good and i think the last and definitely not the least i think the the money was very different at that point of time because <laughs> it was a domestic bank versus foreign bank you know difference of culture at that point of time was substantial in terms of what foreign banks were ready to offer uh, it's a fixed salary and then bonuses it's a different thing that i, I went to jb morgan and merrill acquired dsp's balance take in just 2 years so uh, so at least the last part actually <laughs> was well taken care of for people who stayed back and obviously merrill continued to do really well and and the jp morgan also did really well in terms of how they emerged one of the leaders in the investment banking space in india so i just have tremendous amount of gratitude for you know both these places that i've been and the, the kind of learning that i had in in both these places and the bosses that i work with uh, or the seniors that i work with were terrific is a lot that actually has gone in the way i have developed as an investment banker in both these places how important is it to step into a startup kind of an environment even at these large companies whether you think about you made this move to jpm very established name globally in in investment banking but then kind of just setting their paths in india and then you kind of did the same thing 11 years later with avendis capital which had a pretty good name but really needed that amplification right kind of it was more like startup to scale up kind of a journey how important for an individual to put themselves in this kind of a situation where we need to kind of get out of that comfort zone and say hey i need to do something more something more entrepreneurial perhaps to really get to the next level of growth i think to each his own rohit uh, in my view rick because there are some people who do phenomenally well in large organizations carve out their niches and build their careers and then there are people who get kind of restless 
even if things are going well. I haven't seen that people will actually move very soon if they're uh, if they see the growth. And I think the reason for me also to kind of make these calls where I just saw probably the probability of higher growth to be higher in the next opportunity. And again, none of those were I didn't go out and actively sought out. So that's another thing that I I figured out. It's not that you know I haven't taken interviews in my first fifteen years, but where I shown interest and actually have gone and talked to people, somehow they have never materialized. When you say I'm really happy here and then somebody calls and, and then you start really thinking, hmm, let me think about it. And actually it's that has worked well. I joined, I wouldn't say Avendus was a you know a startup because I joined a pretty established practice. When I joined, DNT was already a leading practice. My partner Today, Karan was then director and along with uh, Gaurav, they were really doing amazing. So I actually didn't think that I was coming, like taking this to like next level or something. I just thought that this space is exciting, is continuing to grow. I want to be really part of something that is growing part. And then I think after I came here, we really got into the rhythm with boss, with my partner, and we started going after larger things. Also, our clients grew, so and we grew with the clients, and then I think we got a lot of confidence that we could go and pitch to the larger clients who were not our existing clients and could think big of doing larger transactions. At a point in time when I joined, I didn't think that I would be actually getting into the zone of bunch brackets. I just thought that, you know, there's a nice niche or a bracket that has been created by a vendor, and that bracket will continue to grow and continue to do well and then that itself is a great opportunity i'm just being honest but like when we started doing things the momentum started building up we felt confident pitching to the companies for larger transactions the larger investors came to us because you know they knew that we know the space really well and that gave us a lot of confidence to actually you know bang the the table and say no give it to us we'll do it better than others I think we also consciously decided that we'll not let go of our DNA of 30, 40, 50 million dollar transactions also because there are a lot of innovation and the new ideas and the ability to go deep in companies' relationship actually happens when you start a little early with the company. How early is obviously the question, Rohit. Maybe I got a little digress. So but the, the question is, I'm not a kind of guy who's like a who has a risk appetite of a startup so the one thing when i came here there was a thought also like i'm going doing this tech banking you, you'll interact with a lot of companies and you know you're some of them are like probably could be exciting and and maybe that could be one of the the routes right eventually that you'll go and join one of them right i think one thing i just realized in like first two years after i came here like i don't think i can do that and you're an entrepreneur and, and I've with and interacted with so many entrepreneurs. All I can say is that I have such an immense respect for entrepreneurs, not just for what they build, but like the what they just go through. It's it's a different type of life every day, right? There's every day something is happening, which, you know, there are at least seven out of ten things which make you think that you know probably this is the last day of the company or maybe last month of the company and they just they keep at it and like some days are good some days are really bad i just realized that in terms of processes discipline i just realized that that is one thing is not from i don't think i can do this i can 
I can manage the, the transition from a large bulge bracket process driven or platform driven form to a entrepreneurial go-getter content driven probably and I don't claim to say that the large firms are not content driven but I'm saying that we don't have a choice I maybe mean, we, we don't have like a New York platform or something so all we have is is us so we have to do like double the effort in terms of to make sure that the content is is relevant so that's why I'm saying content driven but that transition itself was not easy for me and it took a while to get in and now this is my second skin or this is the only skin but one thing i'm very sure like and and i've seen a lot of people like oh somebody's a billion dollar company and an entrepreneur is a hundred million worth or a five hundred million worth or somebody's two million dollars i never felt that i want to be that guy <laughs> uh, i just say like that guy is there because he deserves it i don't think that i deserve that because i haven't taken that risk and neither do I have ability to take that risk at this point of time, at least. And so I'll do what I do good, which I believe that working closely with founders to make sure that when we go and talk to investors, you know, they they realize their potential with respect to how good the company and the founders are. And at least, you know, it's my job to actually help the founder to make sure that investors appreciate how good it is, right? And this is one business where you do more and more and you get better at it. So it's not that the gray hair or lack of hair doesn't mean that actually you're out of it, but actually it just gets better. I mean, there are some businesses where whether it's consulting, whether it's like law firms or investment banking, where the more experience is always better. Like at every year, you'll probably have something more, which somebody who's 20 years younger may or may not have. <laughs> Maybe that's not true if you're coding or if you're a product manager. <laughs> so... Um, maybe that's why this also has a longer runway and higher DCF outcome. Very cool. We've talked uh, about Avendis Capital. Maybe do you want to introduce the audience to who Avendis Capital really is and specifically about your division, the DNT team in investment banking? What all do you do? Yeah, Avendis is now full service investment bank. It started almost 22 years ago as coolstartups.com. That was the first name. Started by three individuals, uh, Gaurav Deepak, uh, Kaushal Agarwal, Ranu, Ranu Vora. Ranu was CEO of the company till some time ago. Gaurav runs the company now. They started in the first internet boom or internet wave. And the idea was to work with tech entrepreneurs and continue to grow with them. Obviously, that didn't work on the internet side. So they realized that the other, the growth area was the IT services and BPO. So right from day one, at least the DNA of the firm has been like, we are not brokers. We are not directory service providers. So day one, they said content has to be the key DNA of your service. So within IT services BPO, they went so deep they could, you know, obviously add a lot of value with respect to positioning of the companies, understanding the business, explaining the business, and um, that DNA of the firm is still there across all the firm, including wealth management or NBFC. Obviously, Spark institutional equities came and joined us, but like one of the things that clicked between the two firms is because they had the same DNA. The connecting dot is important, but the only connecting dot is not. So you have to have very solid base because connecting the dot has to be purely based on you know the industrial logic and deep understanding of the businesses, and that kind of runs. So these uh, three gentlemen ran investment banking, and we did some large deals in IT services. Satyam, Sarko were the two large ones in 2008. 2008, we also started other uh, investment banking practices, um, healthcare infrastructure, consumer uh, financial services. 
our practice started in 2011 dnt they gaurav our ceo he realized that there's a lot that is happening on this internet consumer internet so a lot in terms of series a or seeds checks were happening and said there's something's happening here and said let's start and obviously there's a lot of resistance within our vendors and not many people wanted to do it uh, my ex boss ashish decided to come back from uk to kind of lead the practice and my partner karan joined from outside he was and he is crazy passionate about technology payments and said like somebody's ready to bet on this he said you know i'm going to give my 100% and the four member team started that and there's not much that happened in first couple of years so they like they also have written reports like india goes digital india goes mobile where that one nobody was talking about and they said oh these guys are not something right these guys are talking about something which has not been done and people started taking notice we did our first transaction with perse which is daily hard now 10 million dollar transaction our second transaction was book my show i think 20 million dollar transaction now we proud to say i mean that both these clients are still about the most important cherished clients and we have a deep relationships with them so and maybe things have changed with respect to probably people who used to earlier cover them but is a book my show karan has always been involved in book my show but right and that that means two things one is we also managed over a long period of time institutionalize the relationships and that is a key to any investment bank right you don't want to make rainmakers you want to make an institution that you know continues the business and 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 stays so that is important now 2015 kkr invested in us and gaja invested in us now we have full fledged brokerage business which is parks institutional equities we have nbfc which provides structured financing solutions we have wealth management which you know caters to you know all the hnis and we have um, asset management we have a private equity business group business long short hedge and long only equity so so we are now a full service investment with the same dna across all these business units so considering where india is and how it's going i think a super exciting time for all of us to kind of take this to next level very cool certainly investment banking has evolved over time and you have now been in this industry for almost 20 odd years can you tell us kind of what people thought of investment banking when you started off versus how it has evolved now you mean the talent or you mean the clients the investment banking as a profession per se yeah the profession has two angles one is the people who work in it and the second is the external world that kind of perceives who you are right so which one and probably want to cover both but which one is more important from your perspective to start i think more the latter the customer's perspective customer's perspective right so look investment bankers has a special place in everybody's mind maybe because of all the wall street movies that they see and you know right from shakespeare's time or maybe you know a thousand years ago i think the guy who uh, deals with money is is always considered to be something is not the right guy uh, you want to sell your house you want to do it um, directly you don't want a broker but at the same time you get a guy and he helps you out and at the time he eventually said to to make kya so you get all the types there are people who they say that you add a lot of value in our business and thankfully right from the beginning we have worked with people who believe that if we work together as a team uh, investment bankers could add a lot of value 
to the process, to the investor conversations in M&A and um, including actually some of the, especially in DNT, some business understanding and uh, the business advice as well, uh, purely because for, it's everybody's learning, right? So as a banker, I couldn't have gone and told a steel company that, oh, maybe you could change the ratio of, you know, the coke and iron ore uh, by 3% and, and you will see different results. Uh, <laughs> so, like, might as well smell the same coke before you make that comment. In DNT, you can say that. And the reason is because you're walking the corridors and say, you know, maybe you're, Maybe your shipping costs are slightly on the higher side. We've seen probably like these days they are 48 rupees and not like 65 rupees. And you're telling me that you're one of the best in the industry. No, you're not. Um, people say, oh, oh, yeah, seriously? Then like, do you mind helping me with it? And yeah, like the four people, uh, you know, these the people who actually do this, they're looking for business anyway. So just one example. And it's a real life example. And we have helped somebody to bring down his logistics cost because for some reason, he thought actually he was in the top quartile, but he was probably out of the bottom quartile as well. But these things happen. Or CAC, uh, everybody has different definitions of it, and we probably know, like, look at all, no, 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 <laughs> you're not good. <laughs> you're not good at it. I can tell you. <laughs> so, I'm seeing that there was a period in between where people just thought that, like, let, let us do it ourselves. And, and I've been through that period myself. And the only money will be paid only if you are giving me money, right? So if you are a large bank and you have a balance sheet and you're lending it or you're providing acquisition financing, they only will pay you money. Otherwise, we are smarter than you, right? And we'll probably pay you because in some cross-border transaction, you know somebody in Kansas City who I don't know and or you know somebody in Guangzhou that you know, you're making the deal happen. Okay, we understand that. But if I know the founder, then what is the value that you're adding? No, but that has changed a lot because people understand that the complexity of getting transaction done is not that straightforward. But at the same time, there are some founders who just love this whole song and dance about creating tension, playing one investor versus another, increasing the price. And there are some founders say that, you know, look, I'll run the business. And I know that I probably have to do some management meetings and need to take some tough calls and some negotiations. But largely, I want you to do 80-90% of the work because I think you're good at it. And plus, my time should be spent on my business where I can actually create a far larger outcome uh, rather than saving the fees that I'm going to pay to the investment banker. So I'm seeing more of that. Also, where you are in the cycle also kind of helps because... If people think that I can raise the raise my hand and people are going to put money or then I don't need the banker. And then I'm, now I'm coming to you and you help me and raise $100 million. We're like, probably, yeah, I mean, it's possible. But sometimes the damage is done already. And there's not much, I'm not a magician to kind of get you capital out of nowhere when the business is not doing very well, right? It also depends on who's in your cap table. There are certain investors tell their founders that you don't need to work with advisors. You have to do everything yourself. And while others say that, you know, work with good advisors, save your time, spend that energy in your business. And then, you know, three months, six months, you'll always see an article in Wall Street Journal and Economist where some banker is maligned and how banking is the community that has brought the world out while making bonuses. Then obviously, people don't like it. The whole tech 
especially on tech side, everybody is trying to disintermediate something, right? So if you're somebody who's trying to disintermediate something and then you work with an intermediary, which is not consistent with what you believe in. So sometimes that also works out. So there's also some people who say like, you know, the, the guys who work with bank are the guys, their business is not well run. And that's um, US SaaS myth that has been nicely created by people uh, who want the best deals for themselves so that there's not enough tension that happens in in the processes. So it's probably the most amazing cartelized view that has been created by people to get the deals that they want. But um, I also realized that if I just look at the deals that have gone bad, there are more prop deals that have gone bad vis-a-vis the bank deals that have gone bad. I mean, maybe it's a generic statement, but like if I really have to sit down and, and list all the names, I think I'll get pretty close to that, what I'm talking about. There are a couple of names already in the newspaper who will, you know, you'll probably realize that these are all the FOMO prop deals, what they have resulted in. So, yeah, so you work with the bank who will do their diligence before they take on the mandate or while doing the diligence, they find something amiss, hopefully and usually. I mean, if somebody really had to do the fraud, then they can easily uh, defraud the investment banker as well. But but if there are like some signs missing kind of discussion, then you're better off going, going with a deal where the banker is involved because at least he's done one or two levels of his own diligence uh, before brings out something. So things have changed. And on I think from the talent's perspective, I think interest banking always remains as one of the top jobs, both in campus or lateral. I mean, because A, it's it's exciting, it has a lot of variety, uh, it pays well, also a lot of exit options, whether it's private equity or whether it's joining the corporate, uh, CEO office, CFO, all that. So I think that still will and continues to be one of the top top jobs on the campus or everywhere. Very cool. I'm sure you're exposed to a lot of quality companies across the tech spectrum. From an advisory or consultant's point of view, how do you think about the caliber of finance departments across these companies? Maybe from a scale of one to 10, 10 being really, really good. You know, it, it depends a lot on the scale of the company as well. So I would say that the early stage companies you'll probably get to like six, seven or five, six sometimes in terms of that. For the late stage companies, it can get to eight or nine. You also realize that the, the CFO talent in, in India versus CFO talent in the US is, is slightly different. Uh, the CFO talent in the US is largely, it's a big picture, a strategic, outward going, investor focused talent versus I think India is largely managing the house cost, risk, and then investor discussion. But at least 50% of the CFOs are not part of the, oh, where is this company going 10 years from here kind of discussion, five-year kind of discussion, maybe next year, yes, because the projections are important. Uh, and it's changing, but in 22 years, I thought it would change quite a lot, but it hasn't changed. Not just tech, I'm just talking generally. And I'm not saying that the guy who is a strategy-oriented guy obviously needs a very strong cost control guy as well, where you sometimes lose a lot in the US, especially on the tech side, because the CEO is talking 20 years, CFO is talking 10 years, nobody's talking next six months. (laughs) 
and you need those guys who are talking next six months, next twelve months, and you know how to kind of make your margins go from minus seventeen to plus three and make it work. And we're actually losing money, and somebody's actually sitting and making sure that you're getting the best deals from your service providers, your software providers, or your vendors, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, if someone were to really look from jumping from let's say five to eight or a six to ten, do you think it's that strategic? angle that is most missing in india or there is something else as well no i would think so that because i don't think that less focused on understanding the cost elements if they're not doing something they're not doing because they don't want to not that they don't have handle on and not doing something because they don't want to is a mix of board founder growth amount of capital in the bank all that kind of stuff but i have seen the CFOs in India will usually have a better handle of where the money is going. I don't know whether they'll know the second level, third level solution state or not, but at least they know where it's going. And that's consistent. I've met so many people, but generally people know. And sometimes sometimes in private, they've said, you know, look what is happening. So much money is being spent. It's not, it's not making sense, but that kind of stuff, right? All right. Let's go into a little bit of a hypothetical, but let's try to make it as real to the current situation as possible. Let's say I am a CFO of a $10 million ARR company. What would be your advice for me in the current environment? You can bucket it in terms of, um, you know, whatever is happening, uh, and that's kind of direct impact from a profitability perspective or investment appetite from funding perspective or other just market pressures perspective. So people are incredibly focused on where the dollar earn is going. And I'm not saying that means that people want everything to be profitable. No, that's not the case. And people are ready to give you know, a lot of leeway for you know, unprofitable companies if they're growing in the direction that they need to grow and for which they need to spend money. That means money being spent on sales, marketing, money being spent on maybe customer acquisition if LTV to CAC makes sense. But people are majoring productivity and even in the sales and, and marketing. But if you're not doing well on gross margins, if you're not doing well in contribution margins, that if you're not doing well on variable costs, I think people have far less patience for you as compared to patience for sales and marketing. People are also focused on the R&D cost, but more like is any of the variable cost is kind of shoved under R&D. And then if tech is really the is, is really the prime mover of the industry, then do you need to have like 10 people, 50 people or 500 people to do things? Like because I think people are increasingly asking the question of is throwing people at the problem is the only solution. So that's where the tech costs are, are important. Earlier, people were not focused on your fixed costs. Uh, which is admin cost, um, cost of CFO's office, cost of HR. I think people are spending time because people people realize that there are a lot of companies who are at like a variable break even and telling that, you know, after that, economies of scale are going to come in picture. And like a couple of years have passed, but the economies of scale don't count. So like your fixed costs are increasing at the same rate as your top line is increasing. So, and then you'll always have a new reason to tell either a new initiative or new geography or a new product which is good it's like you know day zero as bezos calls it but 
I don't think everybody has patience for day zero all the time. It's not about the expense, whether you're getting enough return on that expense or not. And, and, and people are also benchmarking. Very cool. Has there been a considerable increase in the, the number of months that it takes to close a deal? Or is it still kind of that similar ballpark that it used to be maybe two, three years ago before all the hype post-COVID? So I would say what happened in 21 was aberration. We are not in the market where it's taking incredibly longer than what it used to before. So I've done this analysis that from kickoff where we meet in company presence, it's business plan and everything to us. Till the money in the bank, average period has been seven and a half to nine months. And that had come down to like six and some cases like two or three. But that is generally the time for companies to get things done, which is for other sectors sometimes could be shorter. So it's a good asset. It can get done in six months. In tech, actually, people spend more time because it's the elevation of the business that needs more conviction than the existing set of the business. While in the other businesses, late stage companies, there's not much that call that you need to take on know where this business will be three years five years down the line got it any advice to the cfos in terms of from a banker standpoint what are you seeing in terms of what the best in class companies are keeping as reserves is it 18 months 24 months longer than that 18 months is rule of thumb in my view and considering where we are today i mean there's a lot of noise negativity uh, sometimes people take longer but that's why 24 months is your comfortable 18 months you should definitely start thinking about capital raise 12 months you need to be in the market tomorrow six months you need to call your internal investors and ask for the bridge less than that is a problem what would a cfo need to do to be funding ready as you said many of these things if it's you know if you have 12 months of cash in the bank you should start raising tomorrow if anything shorter, you should already already be having those conversations, right? And with experience, I know that having that readiness does a lot of good whenever either the investors are knocking on your door or you need to uh, knock on the investor's door. So what could a CFO do to be ready for a funding event? Yeah, look, I'm not talking about what state the business needs to come in because that's a different conversation, right? And that I think that's horses for courses. But more I'm talking about readiness perspective is that your MIS needs to be clean and MIS needs to talk to the audit financials because in the last couple of years of quest for growth, I think MIS was a little super clean, but then it had sometimes was missing correlation with audited financials. There's other thing that I think people should do once in a while. AA, I think they need to have very stronger internal audit and some sanity of how MIS is being collected and all that. The vendor DD, the financial vendor DD, either for external purpose or for even internal purpose for internal investors purpose, I think it may not be a bad idea to have a cadence um, to actually get that done once in a while. The reason is it's not that expensive, actually. They're considering there are people who burn like a million dollars and then when it comes to this, this costs like 20 lakhs to 40 lakhs. Right? It's not a lot of money. and But it saves incredible amount of time when you're actually in the process. And the, the idea should be not like, oh, oh, I don't want this to be part of my VDD. But oh, if you're thinking like this, probably the incoming investors also would be focused on this. So let me see what is it that is going wrong in terms of perception. So let me kind of correct it, right? And if you do that well in advance, then you're ready for any type of diligence where it actually happens. So that is something that is important. You see, the board decks has 
decent amount of MIS. But I think one thing that is increasingly we've been hearing is that, oh, we didn't know this was happening because board was looking at MIS and was very happy. But <laughs> there was a gap between the financial statements, audited financial statements and MIS. And I guess not that everything was like purposefully done, but it's like some sloppy business somewhere, right? Yeah, someone was trying to cut some corners and then it just ended up ballooning into something more. Well, genuine mistakes huh? as well, not just cut corners. Like, you know, I, I was mm. working with someone in MIS, this one line missing. He got to know while doing the divisions what to do. I mean, and, and I know that it was not purposefully done with genuine. I mean, it's actually company founders said, oh, shit. And they called the DD guys and they called the investors saying, look, this has happened. There's a line missing. Some 3 4% gone. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. Let's talk about a CFO-banker relationship or a founder-banker relationship. I'm sure there's a lot of trust that is bestowed upon the bankers. Beyond just the momentary, or I'm saying momentary, but it's, as you said, anywhere between sort of 6 to 12 months it could take. Beyond that kind of rather defined time frame, what would you expect from that kind of a relationship between either a CFO and a banker or a founder and a banker and how you would advise founders or CFOs to kind of help bankers help them better? Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. So if you talk to any banker, I think none of the bankers would want to be only transaction specific bankers. Everybody wants to be your trusted advisor on an ongoing basis. And people put an effort. I mean, some people don't, but like I'm saying that at least at Avendis, we put an effort to make sure that we are in touch with the company even after the funding is done to talk about challenges, good things, bad things, things that could be done better on that person. And that's why the trust becomes very important. Right? If there is a trust between the banker and the CFO, the banker or the, and the founder, then there is one external guy that you trust who actually can look at it like a third party and tell you if something is amiss or something could be done better or something from next funding or value creation or towards IPO or strategic sale perspective, things probably are not falling in, in line. Now, not every founder or not every CFO will have that trust in an external advisor. And my sense is they need either a board member or a coach or somebody to actually tell you that this is okay, not okay, it's, is important, especially in this hyper growth startup environment. And I've seen the downside of it as well, like either during the process or after the process, we have said that, oh, probably these are the things that you need to change it. And they say, oh, you, you're not convinced about my story. You know, you're not understanding my potential. That is unfortunately part and parcel of my job. If I have to kind of give right feedback, I need to be honest about it. At the same time, I need to be sensible about how to give it and to make sure that the founder sensitivities are managed. Very cool. So, Bangaj, let's move to a little bit on team building. I know certainly I have been a beneficiary of the DNT team culture. And, you know, if I think about it, in the director ED levels, not many people have really left to go anywhere out of the DNT team at Avendis over the last eight years, right? Maybe talk about how do you think about team formation so that every individual feels good about not only what they are doing today, but also what they may aspire to do tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's most that's the most important thing, Rohit, because there are two aspects. A, either my life that's ongoing is is good or horrible. And do I get along with my boss? 
and that's why do i need to take an action something today because i don't like it or yeah it's all good things are working fine you know there is a lot of camaraderie people have fun it's all work but fun as well nobody's doing anything behind my back but having said that where will i be in five years down the line so these are the two decision trees when people take a call so from our perspective we've we've invested a lot definitely on the first side of the question that we talked about like in terms of making sure that the team is invested in each other's well-being there's genuine trust and empathy and generally in avendus right from the beginning no tolerance for one-upmanship no tolerance for trying to create a showbiz where you are the one who's done everything and all that kind of stuff right and that's why the incentives are also structured that way if the team wins everybody wins if the team doesn't win nobody wins we're not here to create stars but we are here to create a team the second part is about you know the growth uh, and you need to make sure that people will get get growth opportunities you've been part of this team so you've seen that at least we've chosen different verticals and and have made sure that the vp onwards people start taking responsibilities to kind of go and run the pnls on the sub verticals and that doesn't mean that the seniors are not involved that doesn't mean the md is not involved but you make sure that the responsibility belongs to the individual who is a vp or a d so that it's her or his responsibility to make sure that md is focused to make sure that they get that business and so you feel that you're not assisting you're actually you're running with the ball and you're one of those two who are passing each other and to make sure that you one of you scores the ball. it doesn't matter whether it's that md's meeting which finally gets the deal or whether it's you go and win the deal finally yourself same thing while closing and nobody has ever said that why did you get md involved in closing the transaction because ultimately it's an institution it has to win the client has to get the best experience but it is the vpd's responsibility of closing the transaction it's a vpd's responsibility of winning a transaction obviously at my level i'm responsible for the whole team's performance so i'm not it's not that i'm going to sit down and say oh you guys do whatever you want and then i'll just you know count the beans no i'm as much invested but you make sure that everybody is equally accountable and responsible and also gets a share of the booty if you win all together right so at least that's what we're trying to do and that has worked out well it's also true that the pie has been growing so that's why everybody is getting more to do everybody's happier our business is cyclical business the pie may not grow in one or two years or pie may will decline in one or two years the people need to have maturity to understand the cyclicity of the business to say that we are going after our clients very hard in the time when they actually need the most help we're there for them but that doesn't mean that we'll probably make as much fees as we made last year this year but when the tide turns you know our clients will remember who was by their side and they will work with us again and and there will be good years at that point of time that vpd level who's been investing in it will be at the forefront to take advantage of that apart from that what else you can do to make sure that people grow people do more and more as they grow so you expand either you expand the product or you expand the geography or you expand the industry so within dnt expanding the industry is obviously the industry has to come right for example <laughs> we were investing in web3 and crypto but i don't think that anything probably will happen so soon there in the next two three years and maybe chat gpt or and an artificial intelligence maybe i don't know so we'll continue to like three years ago we invested in d2c in 2020 we said oh this is something that's happening we wrote a report we went after companies 
we created a you know entirely new practice within that. Or similarly, when like seven years ago when it started, we came look at we lending. We let's start focusing on lending, right? And then we did most of the lending transactions. Similarly, current did that in pay, payments earlier. So we've done something in agri tech right now. We've done something in B two B. You find out a new sector where things are happening, and you invest in it, and somebody will benefit out of it, right? And the whole firm benefits out of it. That is one way of doing it. Second is the geography expansion now. So we've we've started going to Southeast Asia. And one of the reasons we went to Southeast Asia is also because we see a lot of those things that are happening in India are happening and will happen in Southeast Asia. And actually, whatever we have learned from the mistakes that have taken place in this country, actually they don't have to repeat those mistakes. And who is better equipped to share the learnings in last five years from India other than us, who's been at the forefront of this, right? So we are feeling pretty good about expanding into Southeast Asia. So one of the four MDs will probably move there. So that also creates a room for people to grow. Somebody will go there with one of the MDs, and hopefully that business will grow. One of the VPSDs will probably go there, or they will get to do more because somebody is moving there. Then now we have. New product, which is IPO and capital markets, and because we didn't have that like three years ago, now with Sparks Institutional Equities being part of our vendors, and we have now brokerage business. We have number one ranked research in India on the domestic side, and having done what seven block trades in just like one and a half years, even before fully integrating. I think we're feeling pretty good about going after capital market transactions as well, and so some people will grow to be champions of that product. There's a lot of domestic M&A will happen, and somebody will take responsibility of that, and somebody will probably run after that. So, product geography and industry expansion will help team to grow. Now, some people will have that patience of waiting for the next cycle, and some people may not have the patience. But I don't think that you know I can determine whether somebody should have or shouldn't have because I think we've been patient, so we've been rewarded well, and and that's what. It's pretty evident, and people, whoever wants to take more responsibility and you know go on a front foot to bat and swing the ball out of the park, I think we've done everything to make sure that the system is there to support them. As uh, as, as as my boss calls it, like you know, we'll provide anybody to actually the full accountability and responsibility, but we'll provide a safety net. If you're providing the safety net, then you're not worried that like if what if I fail, what are these guys going to do to me? But no, I mean unless. That's why safety net because also the institution's name is also involved, right? I mean, we don't want the clients to suffer, so people will get responsibility. But at the same time, the institution is there to make sure that the best-in-class output is delivered all the time, whether it's the same product, new geographies, new product, new geography, or new industry. So that's one way of doing this. And look, eventually, if the pie doesn't grow in spite of all this. Then I think people will take their calls, or I think we move out, uh, and somebody will grow up. And but that's the test amount of having created an institution at some point of time. But that I mean, we are all assuming because we love. I love what I do. I want to do it as much time as I want. So I want to make sure that the pie grows. Very cool. You've been around for a while in the banking circles. What keeps you going? It's not an easy job. It takes a toll on your body. It takes a toll on you mentally. It keeps you away from family. What keeps you motivated after all this while? Two things. One is obviously working with super exciting founders and the companies gets you a different excitement. You love it, and you work with companies. They grow, value gets created. I think you feel good to be part of somewhere in that. Look, I'm not a crazy guy to say that you know it's happening because I raised the capital and so on. We are 
somewhere we are part of that ecosystem which is making it happen and i feel very good especially if it, if it keeps happening well i feel very sad if we raise capital and then eventually the capital is blown up and, and something tragic happened to the company we feel as sad as the founders i mean obviously founders grief is far more but we feel sad as well because both for our founders as well as for the investors that we got into the company right because ultimately if the investors don't get rich or their value is not created then eventually people will not invest in the company so we track that metrics very closely in terms of how many companies we work with and how many companies actually have created value for the investors so that is something that we go track very closely so utmost joy is in that actually that the companies that you work with continue to grow and become bigger and bigger and value gets created that is one second thing is which again in last three four years I've, I've loved is this working with the team making sure that the new leaders get created and the new practices get created and and just that the, the whole as my boss is the institution building i mean he trusted karan and me in doing something and that's why we could manage to do things on our own and we hope that we will do the same with our juniors and they will and they are doing I mean, the people who are growing up the new mds the new partners and the new directors and people go and win on their own or people just take some help from us but they win so that gives an immense amount of joy yeah so those are the two things that give me joy actually when i moved to the new office the thing that i did was uh, i removed all the lucites or tombstones from my room i said now that's not the major that i'm going to go by from now onwards it's about the franchise institution team people and the brand uh, well now you have many more uh, best advisors of the year trophies to keep on your shelf so why do you need those small mementos from back no. in the day Best advisor trophies. Uh, I am more interested in the <laughs> still more interested in the revenue than the best advisor trophies. <laughs> uh, very uh, cool. Uh, so, Bankaj, there are a lot of shit hit the fan moment in banking. It's it's a very, of course, it's a customer service focused business. So, I'm sure uh, there are on a regular basis, uh, if not daily, certainly a weekly basis, there are situations which are high pressure. How do you keep your calm? in those situations and how do you make sure the team is also not freaking out when something not what everyone was intending to happen happens i don't know whether i'm calm or not but i guess yeah reasonably okay reasonably calm sometimes you're shit scared but you can't just show it to the team because if they see that you're shit scared then this shit is really going to hit the fan <laughs> so sometimes it's the bravado that you know yeah nothing don't worry you come out of this situation sometimes i call my boss <laughs> uh, but that has uh, that's come down substantially so i think there are two questions that i ask i always ask myself is what's the worst outcome second is is it life threatening <laughs> and then everything is fine very cool well let's move into a lightning round i think it has been an uh, interesting conversation so far so we'll we'll have some fun now with uh, with the lightning round i'll ask you some very simple questions so all i need is immediate responses okay uh, sweet or savory savory books or podcasts books thinker or doer doer linkedin or twitter linkedin scotch or whiskey scotch money or happiness Now happiness, I got money, man. Gauri or Karan, who's a better partner? <laughs> <laughs> you can skip that. Order <laughs> <a> line, dude. <laughs> mountains or beaches? Ah, uh, mountains. 
growth or profitability? Profitability. Cricket or? You asked this question to me three years ago. You were about the same. I'm tracking. Hopefully, we'll last longer to, to have a time series analysis of it. Cricket or soccer? Cricket. What is your one hidden talent? Hidden acting. Ideal place to retire? <laughs> Kolapur, my hometown. Number one item on your bucket list? I don't have any. No? I don't go by bucket list. Who is your role model, personally or professionally? Hi, I, my role model is uh, one of my uncles. Um, he's a doctor and he's been, he's helped so many people and made so many friends and he touched so many lives. Um, it's an amazing journey. So All right. Always. Uh, penultimate question. One thing that can make you 10x more productive. Mm. All right. And the last one, uh, describe yourself in three words. Persistent, driven, honest. Well, I guess that's a wrap for us. Thanks so much, Pankaj, for giving all the time and uh, this uh, thoughtful and insightful conversation. Much Thank appreciated. You. Thank you so much, Rudy. It was nice to, uh, to be here and I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Your comments will make us better. And be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.